Welcome to the Rods and Sis podcast. I have a special guest, Jim Price. How are you doing, sir? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Um, yeah, let's let's get on to it, man. Um, I see that you're from Massachusetts, man. Can you give us a quick background mm-hmm. of when um what got you to make this book, man? So, um, of course, uh, I'm a school counselor. My background is born and raised in Springfield, Mass. Um, the same town as the NBA Basketball Hall of Fame and Dr. Seuss was born and raised and did all his work. Um, I'm a school counselor, also in the public schools. And I also um, in a, is, am a, a doctoral candidate at American International College right now. Um, and a lot of my background with, this, with the book um, came from me doing social skill lessons with kids. So um, back in the day, back in like maybe 2013, 2012, somewhere in that bracket, um, I was doing um, social skill building lessons with elementary level kids and some of them behavioral as well. So their focus would be all over the place, of course, and it would be hard to have them focus. So I decided I would um, put forth in a new idea. And so one social skill lesson class that I had with the kids, I just brought in a a snail puppet and I named him Harold from the and then um, after that, I mean, the kids were dynamic. They listened to the lesson. They were focused and ready to go all the time. So, and, and the kids loved the idea of being able to interact with the snail puppet and um, I would model behaviors and things like that, social behaviors and cues and things. So it worked out great. And um, at that time I was not even thinking about anything to do with books or anything like that. I w- it was just suddenly that I created to have children get through the social lesson back then. And then all these years later, it's like um, the pandemic happened and the shutdown happened with all the schools and everybody was virtual. And then um, something came to me like, you know, I could probably turn that into like a social skills building series for kids. And um, I started fleshing out some ideas and the ideas fleshed out to more ideas. And um, before you know it, I had my first book um, put together and then I found a publisher and, um, that was that. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know too much about mass. So how's, you know what I mean, mass for, you know what I mean, the, 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 the challenges of mass, you know what I mean, within the, the school. I know you, I know you're working currently for the schools, but how is that dynamic for the kids and at the level? Is it like anywhere else? And is it the challenges, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, cause I, our only where I heard about Springfield was, I mean, from The Simpsons. So I, I don't know the, the layout of Mass. Yes, yes. So, I mean, um, the layout, there's uh, um, a lot of inner city issues just as any other place and stuff like that in terms of education. And a lot of times what happens, a lot of the inner city schools are like underfunded and things like that. So you see a lot of the kids have to deal with having old computers and old textbooks and things like that, you know, but then you go to other places where it's, you know, it's further out, you'll have you know, brand new everything, brand new computers, brand new laptops, you know, like that kind of thing. So, um, and also the underlying thing of poverty, dealing with poverty too. Um, I think that has incorporated a lot of the experiences as well. Um, and when we talk about uh, Massachusetts, in Springfield and the inner city things that go on in the school systems and things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it is a diverse population, um, definitely diverse. And I think that having that diverse population like that definitely helps you be able to expand and um, experience different cultures that are different from your own and be able to um, connect with 
people that are different from your own self and maybe have different cultural norms and um, values than what you know I may have and things of that nature. So I think that experience in terms of the inner city, Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, at least, and you know some of the surrounding cities, that's been the experience in terms of um, the school, the school settings, and and also the environments as well. So, man, what what, what made you want to become um, a counselor? It's definitely a challenging job to, you know, what I mean, uh, listen to what the kids' problem is and then with the parents. So, what what made you that career of choice to to do counseling in schools in the school system? Well, even when I was a lot younger, it seemed like um, I had this thing about me where people seemed like they were comfortable talking to me about things, talking about issues and problems they were having. And of course, you know, I would always be the type to not talk about other people's things. You know, like people could come to me and just talk about things. And that was at a very young age. And as I got older, um, things continued to flow that way. And so by the time, you know, I got out of high school and everything like that, I said, um, maybe that'll be the path I'll try to choose. But at the time when I got to college, I wasn't thinking I was going to be in the schools. I was just thinking more like uh, in terms of like providing like clinical mental health and stuff like that. So by the time I graduated from college, um, I did get into, you know, I was a therapist for a little bit and did work in the clinical um, therapist realm, clinical services, providing clinical services to adults with mental health issues and things of that nature. So um, that was my avenue or what I was planning to do. But then um, things changed track and I ended up um, getting a job at a private school. And um, I had never been in the school any school district at that time before. I just had the clinical background. Um, but then I got into it and I was like, wow, um, I enjoyed the atmosphere of the school and helping the kids and stuff like that and help seeing them, you know, grow and nurture themselves in terms of um, learning and understanding things and, and growing. And I liked it that dynamic of things. So I kind of just was like, you know what, I, I think I'll stay around. So it did take some time. I had to get my licensure. Of course, you know, Massachusetts, they have a licensure um, that you need to have. So I had to go and apply for licensure so I could get the license to be a counselor. But, you know, once I did that, it was like, okay, well, this is, I think this is where I want, what I want to do. And since then, my journey. What is the difference from private school and public school? So the, the, the people can know what's the major difference from doing uh, being a counselor at a private school than a public school? Is it a funding different? Can you break that down for the, the audience and mm -hmm. you know, many people that listen to podcasts? Yeah. So, I mean, private schools are funded primarily through either state funding or um, by the public school system. So most of the time, like that would be the difference in terms of like in the private school, they would call it being you, they would call you a clinician versus a counselor, but they would do the primary the same thing. Um, as far as helping kids, counseling kids, having social groups, all those things, one-to-one, -one, um, crisis intervention, all those things. So it would come down to a lot of time to funding. So a lot of the kids who end up in the in the private schools, not all of them, there's some schools that are gifted schools where you have you know, parents who pay their tuition because they just want their kids to go there. But you also have the other private schools where you, they're dealing with um, um, kids who have behavioral issues, social emotional issues, and things like that. So what they do is they send those kids from the public schools and um, put them in the private school and pay for them to be there. Of course, you know the, the public school will pay a lot more money to have them put there, 
But I mean, you know, that's what ends happening. And a lot of those kids either stay there for an extended amount of time, maybe they do a 45-day eval to see if they are okay, or they might stay with them longer, depending on what the behaviors and social-emotional needs are of that child. So, I mean, it does come down to funding. It definitely comes down to, to funding and um, what's available. Do you, do you feel also, do you also feel that, you know, I, I don't know, you know I mean? I don't know how, how old are you compared to me? I'm, I'm third, I'm going to be 30. Um, do you feel like, you know, I know back in the day with students that had, you know I mean? Hyperactive, uh, ADHD, yes, ADHD, ADHD. Yeah. It was trying to push the pills. How do you feel about for a student with ADHD? Do you think they have to get on the medicine? or you think they can be other approaches to that? I always felt like the medicine, I mean, most of the medication they give the kids are adult, really made for adults. And I never agree with that as far as pumping kids with, like kids who are still developing, um, you know, their minds and bodies and things of that nature and pumping or giving their kids, the kids adult medication to handle um, diagnoses that they may have. But I know that is the most prevalent thing that you see, especially you know, um, in, in our school system or whatever over here in Mass, where a lot of parents are opting into having their kids receive um, medications that are made for adults to try to um, alleviate or even, you know, just decrease some of the behaviors that they see in their child. Um, I've never agreed with that. I always thought it would better to maybe come up with an intervention plan or something like that, a plan that can... Um, will meet the kids' needs versus pumping them with um, medications that's not made for their bodies. It's made for adults. Uh, but you do see that as prevalent amongst uh, a lot of the parents and their decision-making in, in terms of trying to find an answer. But I always say medication is not an answer. It's just like anything else. You put a Band-Aid on something, you're still going to have the problem underneath. So um, I always was not an advocate for medication for kids, but you do see that as being something um, that happens. But I do prefer there to be more like, you know, social interventions and things of that nature. Make up a behavior plan, something that can can be included with accommodations that would help that kid succeed in the classroom. I, I, I totally agree because I've seen it firsthand of, you know what I mean, to get on this, you know what I mean, riddling and stuff. They become like a, you know I me mean, walking dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like, it kind of feel like, you know what I mean, um, like almost how, you know what I mean, in urban areas you see, you know what I mean, fiends walk around. Yeah. They don't even know, they have no care in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like anybody needs that to be on something like that, um, mm -hmm. honestly. Because yeah. you look at you look at Adderall, a lot of people in college, they use that to, to boost them up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The person that really needs it, it takes them down. You yeah. know what I mean? So I, I don't feel like that's needed for the a lot of the kids that they try to put on minority kids pretty much, but yeah. Um, I don't think they need that, man. I just think they need, you know, somebody to take the time and really, you know what I mean, mm. take the time and, and get, like you said, a plan for them. Yeah, some kind of behavior plan. But I feel like a lot of people, you know what I mean, I know y'all understaff and, you know what I mean, it's a lot. You probably imagine probably 100 plus kids and mm. I know that's a difficult task right there itself. Yeah. You know? Classrooms are overcrowded and, and becoming even more crowded because, um, you know, you got schools, at least in our area, you got schools that are closing down and now they have to find a place to put those kids, you know, into. They're splitting them up and putting them in places, 
you know, after this school closed it down to that school, like, you know, we had that instance where one of our charter schools in our area closed down. And so all those kids, a lot of those kids, they didn't want to, you know, the parents didn't want to send them to that school anymore because it was no longer a charter school. And so you saw a big mass exodus and a lot of divide of trying to see where all those kids were going to be placed. And of course, um, the places that they go to, of course, that makes the classrooms that, that much um, bigger. So you go from maybe having classroom sizes where it was once like maybe 15 to 20, now you're close to 30. Uh, and then you have just one teacher, you know? And um, I mean, it is a strain. It definitely is a strain on the system. And I think um, those are things that need to be addressed in terms of the, the educational system part of it. But, um, but I mean, you do what you can and you manage what you have to try to help people. But I know when you have a dynamic like that, that means that the child is going to get less help because, you know, th that one teacher cannot spread themselves around um, totally for just one-to-one -one time like that for 30 kids, you know, it's, it's going to be, that's going to be a difficult challenge for a lot of them. So um, that is a challenge that I do see happening um, throughout Massachusetts. And I'm sure about crossing U.S. too, that's been a problem because I, I, you know, I keep up with the happenings in, in other parts of the country in the U.S. as well. So I do see that as being something prevalent. What, how, how do you feel like, do you feel like the, the COVID year was really not really helped the kids, but also made back farther behind with the virtual? I feel like I have a daughter, which is seven. I feel mm -hmm. like it didn't really, it really didn't help. It put her more behind. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? This is my opinion. This is my opinion. I feel like the virtual stuff really didn't work out well. The teachers mm -hmm. were trying to keep their attention. It's, it's a different from a one-on-one classroom. It's a difference from that than you know, the kids, you know, eating cereal and doing this thing, watching TV. It's hard to keep their attention at that yeah. age. It's not like you're a college student and you can type, you know what I mean, a Zoom meeting. Yeah, I feel like it was a it put them farther behind. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I do, I do agree with that. That was a, that was a very difficult time for not just kids, but for families too, because you have, I mean, you have inner city kids. Some of them didn't have their homes. They didn't have access to even having internet in their homes to begin with. So a lot of districts had to um, get Wi-Fi hotspots to give to the homes to just so they would even have internet connection. Or have an internet connection to be able to do the Zoom. And of course, you know, that's that's a big task in itself, especially if you have a big school district. Um, but it definitely was a very trying time, not just for kids, but for families too. And I think that disconnect of that in-person part of it, which, you know, was important, you know, it's, it's good when you can raise your hand and you could actually have somebody come to you and, and answer your question versus you're on a screen with 30 kids and the teacher can only see so many on the screen and maybe that kid off the screen has a question and now, you know, he might get not necessarily, you know, get looked at or, or even have his answer, his question answered just because, you know, of the dynamics of how the technology works and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I definitely think it was very troublesome and very difficult. Um, like the kids just, you know, they someone would get on and, as long as they were there for a certain amount of time, at least in our area, if they were on on um, online for five minutes, whether they were considered marked present or app or you know present in the class for that class, and then after that, most of them once they found that out, they would turn their cameras off and or just you know 
start playing video games or whatever, watching TV, doing everything else besides um, focusing on the work that had to be done. So, I mean, that was a learning experience, I think, for the, all the kids and families. And with that, I think when everybody went back in person, it really um, revitalized the idea of how important it is to have in-person in support, in-person interactions, especially when it comes to education. So that's was my, um, at least that's what I feel in terms of that. Um, but some families may have, you know, been able to get through because they had the internet access to be able to um, afford those kind of things in terms of internet access and things like that. But, you know, when you talk about inner city, inner city families and stuff like that, sometimes internet is not the important thing. You know, you're talking about families who are trying to um, just survive and do other things, you know, putting food on the table or pay for medications or, you know, pay for whatever they need to pay for, pay their bills, just be allowed, you know, to stay on top of things like that. And then you're throwing into the mix um, the need to have internet and, you know, some families couldn't afford that. But um, it definitely was a, a trying time. I would definitely agree that it was a trying time. Um, you were talking about mental health, man. Um... What do you feel about this? This this the uh, the Senate over you know I me mean, overturned the bill of Roe versus Wade. What are your feelings about that? Well, I think any time, at least in my opinion, I think you should have the right to do what you want um, with your own persons. And it, it was very interesting how um, something like that, a law that's been in effect since 1973, um, was just decided to be overturned like that after all this time, it's very um, bewildering. This is, it's very problematic because um, in that sense, it's like, okay, um, if that's going to happen, then what's going to be the next thing that's going to be, you know, taken back? You know, it could be anything, you know, um, and you think about how people of color work so hard just to get to the point of um, where they are now across the world. And it's like, um, yeah, especially in the U.S. too, when you have um, all the stuff going on with civil rights movement, and then you know you move forward to the 20, 2020s, and you're having the Black Lives Matter movement and all those things happening, and you're trying to make progress, and and then you see something like this happen, um, that's so demoralizing in terms of um, the way it happened and how it just happened so quickly like that. It was just you know, and then to think you know about Congress too, like. You have congressmen who serve lifetime terms, where other um, areas in politics, they serve a term, like a two-year term, four-year term, something like that. Um, so I think that's a dynamic right there that is problematic when you have um, individuals who serve in lifetime terms in a position um, that should be you know, made to be terms just like any other political you know, positions that are a part of the, the um, justice system, you know? Do you think do you think it's gonna have some long I mean, let's say for a woman's sake, her mental with getting this procedure done, do you think you have to get, you know, I mean some some therapy or you think you're gonna have any kind of mental um mental uh long term mental problems from getting this, you know, I mean the procedure done? 
do you think that will plague a person's mind or you think after it's done, it's, it's over? I'm just saying the psychological yeah. uh, in general, yeah. just getting that procedure done. I'm thinking you probably had to get some counseling after doing something like that. Yeah. that. That is a lot. You look at all the symptoms that happen afterwards, heavy cramping. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you pretty much having a baby. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's passing through. I'm just saying it's got to be some things you got to really – wrap your mind around and really talk to somebody about. Yeah. I mean, any, any situation like that and you go, you're, you're putting your body through trauma in such a way like that. Um, there's, a, like you said, there's, there's always these underlying, underlying um, conditions that happen that, you know, can cause uh, a longer effect after everything the procedure is done, of course. And, um, mental health counseling can help with those things. But I mean, it's always good to have somebody to express your concerns, but, you know, thinking about the aspect of just healing from all the kind of trauma to the body like that healing and, and getting the body and mode where it's fully recovered and things. So, I mean, I always say I'm glad I'm a man because um, <laughs> we'll have to, um, you know, make those kind of decisions in terms of what I'm going to do with my body. And if you're going to, you know, decide you're going to keep a child or, or you're going to um, abort a child, um, not having that decision, I'm glad I don't have to make any decisions like that because that's definitely a um, life altering decision. And, and you're thinking about um, the other side of it when you're, you're talking about a life that is not, you know, fully developed and have, you know, hasn't started quite yet um, being, you know, taken away. So, there's two sides to it. There are definitely two sides to it. And um, that's been the big thing now. You've always, you know, at least over here, um, there's been a whole bunch of protests in a lot of the major cities. As soon as they did the ruling and turned the ruling around, there's been a lot of protests across the U.S. Um, happening and, and from the result of the turning over of the, um, the law like that. Um, so, I mean, people are responding in their own way and, and, some people are, you know, in the U.S. seem like they're okay, and some of the people are against it full-heartedly. Um, but I guess it, it depends on a lot of people and their cultural values and norms and what they believe um, fits their agenda and their criteria for what they feel is co- the correct approach to um, situations like that And when you talk about abortion. So, um, you know, I me mean, growing up in Massachusetts, how was that for you, man? Because you, you see these... Uh... How television, you know what I mean, yeah. portray Massachusetts like it's heavily, heavily um, Irish and heavily um, racist. Mm-hmm. So how was it your childhood in Massachusetts for you growing mm-hmm. up, man? Well, I've definitely had my experiences in terms of um, dealing with racist situations and things like that. Um, I do think that the way that thing, at least in Massachusetts, the way things are in Springfield, too, Things are divided up like that, where, you know, you have your Irish community, you have your um, Italian community, um, you have your Latino community. So, and you know, um, but it's all kind of separated out in a sense, kind of like, you know what I mean? Like everybody's living in their own kind of segment of the city. Um, but I've definitely, growing up, I've had my incidents of dealing with racist situations and um, in terms of law enforcement and, and just in terms of just coming up trying to get jobs and things of that nature. I mean, uh, even stuff as simple as like, you know, being a young 
guy and I'm walking down the street and you know, you're maybe you're, you know, you're not looking menacing. You're not having anything on your mind. And then you're hearing car doors lock and stuff like that from cars who are maybe at a red light. So, but those are just experiences um, that you go through and or I've gone through and um, you learn to nurture those things and learn to take those experiences to actually help you to um, grow stronger in a sense of understanding that, you know, um, you know, you know, you know yourself, people know themselves. And if you're a person who has, you know, good intentions and a good heart about yourself, then you know, um, you know where you stand. But also, also at the same time, though, you know, sometimes that doesn't matter in terms of dealing with law enforcement, that doesn't matter. Um, you could be good, bad in between. But, you know, so a lot of times in those situations, it really doesn't matter. And I think that's one of the things that's um, been, you know, they've tried to address, you know, over the past years or so with all the protests and everything to try to move toward an uh, area where there's um, social equality for everybody and um, equal treatment, you know, getting rid of, of discrimination in, in all aspects of um, the domains of life and, you know, and things of that nature. So um, I've definitely had my experiences, but I, I felt like I use those experiences to shape me to be a stronger person, be a better person and, and, um, and put myself in the mindset to um, be better each day and, and reach to be better, to show and prove that, you know, um, yeah, I may be a person of color, but I also, you know, am a person with dignity and pride, just like anybody else. But I would say also um, that through those experiences, I think it's been different because you know sometimes when you're not when you're not when you're not a person of color, you sometimes you don't really gra understand the gravitation or the gravity of of how um, those experiences can impact you. And you know when you talk about um, discrimination in the workplace and discrimination um, in in unemployment. In employment areas and um, in sports and, and things of that nature, you know, you have it just kind of something that trickles over into a lot of different domains in our lives, especially across the U.S. Um, but it's something that you know we work on, and I think um, even in terms of the way that I approach my um, social skill building series with the books, it's it's in the direction of you know trying to have other understand about accepting others' differences. And things of that nature. So, like even my children's book series focuses on those kind of things, you know, because you figure the youth is where it starts at. It starts in the home with the youth, and um, a lot of those behaviors and things are taught in the home at an early age, and then they get older, and then they um, express a lot of these internal feelings that may be derogatory to our other um, cultural, cultural, you know, norms and cultural people and things of that nature. So, I mean, it is. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot on the plate. I mean, there's so much more work to do in terms of um, trying to work on those aspects across the country, in the US especially. And um, that's all we can do is really just continue to push forward to try to um, bring forth unity and understanding about, you know, um, being able to live life without fear, without, you know, things of that nature, living life without fear and have to worry about um, things transpiring um, even if you are really doing nothing, you know, you haven't, even if you haven't really done anything at all, 
you know, so that's something that um, I've experienced and I know a lot of other people live with too as well. Let's go back to your book, man. So you said you just, how how long did it take you to write your book? Or just... um, it took me probably like six months, seven months all together from by the time I finished um, writing it to um, getting it to print and getting getting it prepared for distribution. Um, it took probably- Did you like, do all this process by yourself or is it my- No, I had a publisher help me too. I had my publisher okay. help me, um, Sherry Kiradine, she's my publisher and she's been so tremendous with um, helping me out in terms of publication and, and dealing with all the business side of what it is to be an author and learning that side of it too, because it's always it's much more than just putting ideas together on a sheet of paper, <laughs> you, know, you know, becomes more, a lot more complicated than that as you move forward in the process of um, getting the books to publication. But then, you know, once you feel, once you get the book published, the book published and stuff, then you feel like that gratitude of, of, of being thankful that you experienced, were able to experience that process and um, see that people are, you know, okay in there um, embracing the message that you're giving with your books, you know? How long did it take to get uh, the publication? How long did that take? Um, I would say after I got everything done and it was published, it took probably, that probably took like two months, I would say. Once everything was done and it was going to be published and go to print and all that other stuff, um, it was probably like two months. And then um, by the end of that, it was like, okay, well, um, you'll get a time for you get a time frame of when the book would be ready, totally ready, and you know that means like distribution wise too, and ready for um, you know to be sold. So it was like two months, I would say, once everything is you've got the finalized copy of the book, um, and then you move it toward you know maybe doing some revisions and things of that nature before you know. So I would say yeah, it's usually like about two months by the time you finish everything else up. Did did you how were uh, did you read your book at a couple schools your school um, with the kids or yeah I actually was been doing uh, like a virtual read alouds or virtual meet and greets I call them so um, a school would connect with me and and I would um, have a set time we would work collaborate on a time um, to do the virtual read. And um, we would do the virtual read and have the kids, you know, I would read the one of the books out loud, you know, just show the pictures and stuff and, and all that. And then afterwards, we would have them have a Q&A with me where they're able to ask the kids way be able to ask me questions about, you know, whatever it might be about the book. Some, you know, would ask questions about how long it take to make it or, you know, how did I come with the ideas for the character? you know, a lot of different things. So um, it gives the kids a chance to connect with an author like me and and not only just, you know, you know, see the book and read the book, but, you know, connect with me and be able to ask me direct questions too. So um, I've been doing that as part of my, my uh, promoting promotion uh, part of the book is doing virtual meet and greets. Um, with school districts and, and libraries and stuff like that. And also um, connecting with um, local museums too, where we would do like events that 
promote local authors and you know we would have tables set out and stuff like that and um have the community come down and um have the opportunity to purchase books and get their books signed and things like that so book signings have been a part of that too of that dynamic of trying to um do promotion in terms of the hero from the hero from the hood series so so what do you have the book on um amazon or where is it on? Or is that a local bookstore? Is it, you know, I mean, you can get online. How are you selling your book? Yeah. So right now, um, my books are sold on Amazon. And also I have my website too, um, which is uh, J-I-M-P-R-I-C-E, Jim Price Books dot education. And um, people can go to my website and they can make purchases of my my first two installments and also I have coloring books that I've um, put together too um, for those installments. And there's a plethora of information about me and things of that nature too on the website. So those are the two avenues that I've been having um, directing a lot of people to in terms of people who want to um, purchase the books and things of that nature. So have you, are you going to, are you coming with some more ideas to make another book or? I'm actually about finished with the third book in the series now. I just got to do some revisions and things, and then I'll be moving forward in the process with that. So I'm thinking um, hopefully by October, maybe, November, maybe the next installment will be out. Um, But, you know, timelines always change. But I am in the process of um, working on the third installment now. And I'm hoping that <laughs> when the third Solomon drops, I will enjoy that one just as well. If they have enjoyed the other two um, books in the in the series, so I'm excited. The same characters, or you got different characters for the installment? Yeah, I usually utilize um, like I have like eight characters all together. That's a part of the series that I kind of utilize, and um, you know, like. For the first book, I had, uh, I think, like four or five, five different characters that I utilized. And then for the second one, it was mainly um, just the two characters, Harold and another character. But I've been, what I usually do, what I've been doing is like um, utilize, utilizing um, characters that have already been developed in, 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 you know, in terms of the Hero from the Hood series and um, just, you know, craft the stories to be social lessons that are something interesting that the kids can um, gravitate to and learn something from and at the same time be entertaining not just to the kids but to um, families and and parents as well okay so what um so how um oh man i don't know how i'm gonna ask this (laughs) so uh what other things you have in mind you want to do in the the kid educational um, environment or, you know what I mean, lane? Do you want to do anything else that are books or oh, I, push the narrative? Yeah, I've actually been collaborating with um, some agencies in our, in, my, in our area, which is about promoting families uh, community family events and things like that to, because I think one of the things that happens when you talk about um, families, especially minorities, um, that's what you see. You see a lot of single parent households 
and things like that. And I always felt like it was good to get back to those two pair households, like it used to be a long time ago. Um, get back into that mode of having two family, two parent households and things, because you see so many um, inner city things happening like that, where there's just single parent households. And so um, that's the other part of it, collaborating with agencies and bringing families together to try to um, embrace that idea of, of two parent households and um, staying together and working together as a family and being a unit and things of that nature. And also, um, understand dynamic of, you know, a lot of the people are dealing with poverty too as well and, and helping on that too. We do have um, a, a, like every summer we have like the Convoy of Hope, which is like a, a huge mission to um, help those in need um, through giving clothes and having food and giving haircuts and all these things, giving shoes. I mean, um, there's such a plethora of things that happen during that event. And those are the kind of events that I connect with to try to help myself um, be more connected with not only just community, but with families and to um, give families, you know, hope and aspirations to um, be able to do, you know, do better and, and get the things that they need, or even on terms of connecting them with resources that can help them to um, get the things that they may need to. And I, I feel like that we do definitely do these, you know what I mean, get back to two-parent household, but I feel like even if you're not in a two-parent two, uh, household, that we still got to get to the deeper issue of uh, get off of um, bitterness and get really some counseling, you know what yeah. I mean, and the parents, the two parents need to get counseling so they can make it work for the kid. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the main problem. We get we get hold on to, you know, the trauma of failed relationships, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, the bitterness. If we don't get past that, we can't co-parent effectively. And, it's, and that's, feel like, that's the biggest reason why things are so messed up in minorities. We can't let go of our egos and to yeah. come to a common goal of, it's not about us, it's yeah. about our kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is very true right there. I know my dad will always tell me um, growing up, he would say, um, yeah, if you, you know, you have a kid um, that changed the whole the whole thing of everything, because then it no longer becomes about you. It becomes about that kid. So, I mean, if if you're not ready for that responsibility, you just need to make sure you don't put yourself in a position to have that happen. You know, so he would always say that to me, and I, I understood that. And, um, you know, I have 11 year old daughter myself, and, um, you know, seeing her grow up and, and being able to help nurture her and, and see her grow and have her own personality and things like that, you know, helps too. And I mean, um, um, she had, a, it was, you know, she dealt with a single parent household too. I'm not, we, we co parented, we co parent well, but of course, you know, um, she would be with her mom. So, you know, I would have her too, but it's like, you know, she's coming through two separate households and things like that. Um, but that is one of, that is true. And mental health is a big part of that. And I think um, when you touch upon the counseling part, that is just, that that really is um, something that's majorly needed because a lot of people, like I always say, is a lot of people in the world who are dealing with so much trauma, um, unhealed trauma that they haven't processed um, from the past or whatever it might be um, that they've never really truly addressed at any point. And when you have, you know, traumas from past experiences and things like that that haven't 
really been addressed in that way, um, that means you're going to carry all that stuff over into whatever whatever you get into in the future as well. So, I mean, counseling is so important to help to be able to deal with a lot of the trauma and stuff like that and, and release all of that. And also, I think, you know, the other part of it is the self-love part too, um, where, you know, people have to try to get involved with more self-love and self-care. You know, um, self-care is important too, you know, because that is a part of that mental health dynamic that helps you to uh, maintain good health if you're in a, in a you know, good state of mind, being able to be active, um, doing the self-care things. You know, some people forget you now they get caught up in the whirlwind of doing things for themselves and working and going to school, whatever it might be, and taking care of kids and all the responsibilities. And then they forget to um, include their own self-care in the matter of being able to, you know, take some time to do something that you enjoy doing for your own self, um, doing the self-care thing. So, you know, all those things fit together and um, mental health counseling and counseling in general, it's definitely a big part of um, trying to incorporate to the point to get to change and things of that nature when you talk about um, people dealing with past traumas in their lives and not um, working their way through those traumas to get some release from those things. But I feel like the the kids nowadays, you know, I mean, them late two thousand babies, you can't uh, teach them like, hey, you used to parents. I'm, you know, I'm only thirty, about to be yeah. thirty. Mm-hmm. Them them old, you know, what I mean, parenting skills don't work for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're very more emotional. You can't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. That stuff doesn't work nowadays. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And we, we're trying to push the same, you know what I mean, curriculum of parenting like that from, let's say, the 80s to the 90s. And, you know what I mean? We can't. Yeah, I mean, that is something that has changed a lot, too, because, you know, back in the day, like when I was growing up and stuff, you know, like you might get, you know, something happening and, you know, you're going to get your spanking. You know, you know what's coming. You know what's coming to you. So, I mean, growing up in that era and things, you know, it would make you think about a little bit your choices before you actually tried to do them if, you know, if you knew something was on the back end of that. But then a lot of that has changed now where, you know, like you have all these agencies and stuff that kind of um, creep in, you know, and and um, now things are, like you said, everything's more sensitized. Like, you know, like, Everything is just everybody. Everything's so sensitive now. Um, so, like that way, definitely has changed and can't. You know, it's, it's different now because you know back in the day, things. You know, if you did something wrong, you might get a spanking or something like that, and you go on back to school and you're minding your business or whatever. But now today, it's like um, those things. You know, are frowned upon and things like that. And um, then you get involved with having people. Um, you know, want to call agencies on you and stuff like that. And all of a sudden now you got people knocking at your door. So the dynamic has definitely changed in terms of um, how things are different in terms of how things were way back when I was growing up. Um, I'm in my forties and I've seen a lot of things happen. And and I mean, um, you know, back in the day, a lot of those things would be deemed okay, you know, but today things are, I mean, it's a different world. You got the cancel, you got the, uh, how you know, the cancel culture and all this other stuff. I mean, everything, everything's sensitive and 
everything you say can, you know, it's almost like anything you say can be utilized in a way to sound, you know, bad or something in some way. So it's almost like you got to censor yourself in terms of your language and censor yourself in terms of your behavior toward others um, because, you know, of the level of sensitivity that's so prevalent now um, in communities and stuff across the country, you know, so it's crazy. It's absolutely out of control. So, I mean, um, those things do play a role. And I think um, the other part of it, at least in Massachusetts, has been um, the plethora of not having any more like too many uh, summer programs that kids can join to keep themselves out of trouble. You know, like back in the day when I was um, young and stuff, they had programs to get us jobs. They had programs that we could join. Like even it was summer camps and stuff like that. You had programmings to keep us off the streets and out of trouble in the inner cities. And now um, a lot of the programs are Hi, this is Jim Price, and you're listening to the Rod Uncensored Podcast. Be sure to check me out at jimpricebooks.education. Thank you.